Want to go further at every stage of your medical career? Learn how MD Financial Management and Scotiabank Healthcare Plus help physicians go further together with insights and solutions focused on the financial health of physicians. Whether you've just been accepted to medical school or you're getting ready to retire, we will understand and anticipate your needs every step of the way. To learn more, visit md.ca slash go further. I'm Blair Bigham. I'm Mochala Mole, and this is the CMAJ Podcast. This episode, we're going to discuss a qualitative study in the CMAJ entitled The Experiences of Family Members of Deceased Organ Donors and Suggestions to Improve the Donation Processes. This was a qualitative study that interviewed almost 300 family members of people who had gone through the organ donation process, and it was looking for ways to see if we provide adequate supports to those families as they're going through both the decision-making process and after they've made the decision to donate. And We'll get more into this later, but to sum it up, there was a lot of support reported in those moments of trying to decide if donation was the right decision. But once that donation was made, a lot of families felt that the hospital teams and organ donation teams had, to put it bluntly, gotten what they wanted and moved on. And so the study really presented some opportunities for us to improve the entire longitudinal experience that families go through during tragedy when someone has to donate an organ. So for me, um, reading through the article, it seems to be a continual theme that I've been uh, experiencing is that we're really good at the medicine part, but the people part, the holistic part is really lacking when we're talking about healthcare. And honestly, like people are definitely grateful for what you do during taking care of their cancer or, you know, when they're in the ICU, but it's the aftercare that probably has the most impact on their quality of life after. And that's the part that we don't do well. So this really resonated with me because, it, you know, we're good at just the medical part of, you know, figuring things out, making the diagnosis and then by, and just the thought that, you know, families just felt abandoned after, the, you know, their loved ones has been wheeled away is really, is really tragic. I remember having a couple of, of brain death cases, um, and the organ donation coordinators were so good with the families. Like they really are very highly skilled at communicating. But then once the decision to was made to donate. I remember how busy they got. They were really busy trying to make sure that tests were done, that allocation was sorted out. And I felt like maybe their bandwidth was just overwhelmed and that then they kind of lose focus on the family because they're trying to get ready for the organ donation process itself. I wonder if it's just a matter of, like you said, Jola, you know, people have their wheelhouse. They're really good at certain things. And there are just these social and psychosocial aspects of what families go through where there's just nobody assigned. There's just no one dedicated to helping people through this process. Maybe this study just highlights that those gaps need to be filled. Yeah, and I think it's just, but I think that's just like, there's, that's a common theme in medicine that there's always gaps in terms mm-hmm. of actually taking care of people. Uh, we know how to take care of illnesses. We are specialists in diseases, but mm-hmm. we're not necessarily great specialists in the people aspect. And I often think that that is what turns patients and, you know, family members away from things such as organ donation is that fear of like, what's going to happen after. 
Absolutely. And we're really lucky today to be able to not only speak with co-authors of the study that was recently published in CMAJ, but first, uh, really privileged to be able to speak to Heather Talbot. She um, is a huge advocate for organ donation. And we met years ago uh, when she was telling me about the story of her son who died uh, tragically and was an organ donor. That's coming up next on the CMAJ podcast. Heather and I spoke five or six years ago, a couple of years after her son Jonathan died in a car accident back in 2009. The family was very quickly faced with a decision about organ donation. Heather, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to speak to you again. You're welcome. Heather, can you tell me the story of Jonathan's accident and what happened when you arrived at the hospital that day? Okay, yes. So um, Jonathan was 22 years old. He was a York University student in kinesiology. He went to a party um, with a friend who drove him to the party, and he never came home. So that was Saturday night. The next morning, Sunday, the police came to the door and asked, do you have a son named Jonathan Talbot? And I said, yes. And they said, there's been a terrible car crash. Uh, You better follow us fast to Sunnybrook Hospital, or you might not see your son alive. Uh, My husband drove, me and my daughter, because I would not have been able to drive. When we arrived at the hospital, uh, Dr. Scales met us and told us uh, what was happening. He explained, and he showed us um, a computer monitor with a scan of my son Jonathan's brain, and it was swollen totally smooth. There were none of the little folds that a brain usually has, and he said, I cannot fix this. And my husband said, well, what if there's a miracle? And he said, no, there will be no miracle. Uh, His optic nerves are severed. He's blind. He's probably deaf. He will never walk or talk or anything again. Everything that was Jonathan is gone. Uh, We were devastated. Uh, He then led us into the ICU where Jonathan was hooked up to all kinds of tubes and monitors, and his head was covered with a hood. But the rest of his body was perfect. There wasn't a scratch or a bruise anywhere on him. Uh, He was on a ventilator to help him breathe. And it went through my mind, well, they're telling me there's no hope. Why are they even keeping him alive? And it did cross my mind that maybe they're going to ask if I would like to donate his organs. And I wondered what I would say. Uh, I was a bit squeamish about it. Anyway, um, the coordinator asked if he had signed his donor card. And I said, I don't know. And our daughter, Emily, said, oh, yes, he did. We discussed it. Uh, He called her a loser because she didn't sign her donor card. And um, (laughs) anyway, it made sense that he would have chosen to be an organ donor because he was a regular blood donor. He had grown his long blonde curls long to... um, take off, uh, to cut off to make wigs for children with cancer. So it made sense. And uh, we did consent to donate his organs. And then we were in the hospital for two days uh, by his side all day, all night, um, while uh, he was wheeled in and out having tests, I guess, to match him with his organ recipients. Heather, you made a comment that everything that was Jonathan was no longer there. Can you tell us a little bit about who Jonathan uh, was and is still to you? Yes, <laughs> I'm going to get emotional now. He was 
amazing. I, he was gorgeous. I know every mother mm-hmm. thinks her child is gorgeous, but he really was. He was smart. He was funny. He loved music. He loved nature. He loved animals. He had snakes. We oh, had wow. a dog, a cat. Um, he was a natural athlete. He won athlete of the year, grade nine athlete, grade 10 athlete every year at high school. Um, and But his superpower was making friends. Mm. I remember one time he was going to a friend's house in a kind of sketchy neighborhood. And I said, why don't you invite him over here instead? I don't really want you going there. I'd heard about gangs in that area. And he says, don't worry, mom. Everyone knows me. Everybody loves me. And I thought, how Mm -hmm. cool is that to feel that way, that everybody loves you? And, um, you know, at his funeral, he really was loved. He had friends all ages, all nationalities. There were well over a thousand people at his funeral. Um, During the open eulogies, one after the other, People stood up. John was my best friend when I moved to Guildwood. John was my best friend at the Y. John was my best friend. And I thought, how many people would say about me, oh, Heather's my best friend. Mm -hmm. It was just incredible. So, um, you know, it was so devastating to lose him, but it was such a gift to hear how much he was loved by so many people. Heather, you know um, that today Joel and I are talking about this article, the study that was done in CMAJ around how supported family members feel uh, during processes like what you had to go through. Are you able to uh, tell us a little bit about how you felt supported uh, from the time you arrived at Sunnybrook through to the uh, conversations with the organ donation coordinator about the decision to donate? Yes, during the process, I really did feel very supported. I felt like everybody was all around us. They were telling us we're going here, we're doing this, we're doing that. They showed me another scan of of Jonathan's brain the next day so I could see it was even worse. The fracture was even bigger. So I felt like, yeah, they're right. It's not getting better. Um, The nurse um, from the ER had come upstairs. She said, I don't usually do this, but... I, I just wanted to come up and check up on him and, and see how he was doing. And that really warmed my heart. Uh, the doctor said, oh, tomorrow's my day off, uh, so you won't probably see me again. And I said, well, that's understandable. It's your day off. And then the next day he came back. And I said, oh, I thought it was your day off. And he said, no, I couldn't leave you. And one of the nurses offered... Um, to cut a curl of Jonathan's hair, which I wouldn't have thought about. Mm. And so she cut a curl. (laughs) She put it, um, (laughs) she pinned it with a green ribbon, which has become a big part of our lives, Mm. the whole green ribbon thing. And I kept it in a little frame, which is on my dresser. And um, so I really felt like everybody was very thoughtful, sensitive, considerate of what we were going through. Very, very helpful. Um, the social worker, I had to ask her for help a couple of times. She was great. Uh, the driver of the car, um, who was Jonathan's friend but crashed the car, um, he was in the hospital too, He but he had very minimal injuries, just scratches. And he wanted to come and say mm-hmm. goodbye to Jonathan. All of Jonathan's friends poured into that room to come say their goodbyes, especially the people who had been at the party the night before. I guess they all texted each other. Everybody knew. Um, and they all came in and we allowed them to come and say goodbye. And my husband did not want to let the driver of the car come and say goodbye. So I went to speak to the social worker 
and she <laughs> she managed it. She got my husband out of the room, got Tyler into the room, then got Tyler out, got my husband back in so that Tyler could say goodbye to his friend Jonathan. So that was very, very helpful. So, I mean, yeah, they were great. <laughs> they really were great. How, how did that support wax and wane or change um, as the process continued towards Jonathan going to the operating room to donate his organs? Did you feel that that support um, was strong from the beginning to the end? Or were there areas where you thought it could have been a little bit enhanced? Well, I mean, they explained what was going to happen um, ahead of the Tuesday morning. They said at 6 a.m. we're going to take the ventilator out. This is probably what's going to happen. This is probably how long it's going to take for it to happen. Um, and they were right on. And they said, then we have to wait five minutes and then we will take him to the operating room. And then uh, my family was just all alone there, you know, at about 6, 10 in the morning. And we had a feeling of abandonment. And it's like, well, now what? <laughs> and uh, we were on our own. And uh, it was it was kind of a little bit scary. And, you know, if I had to drive home, I would not have been able to drive home. I was really, you know, out of it. And luckily, my husband could drive home. So I think there were definitely ways that the that we as a donor family could have been supported once Jonathan left for the operating mm. room. And so there was really nothing. There was a feeling of, um, oh, okay, you got what you want, and now we're on our own. <laughs> so, so basically, if you just explaining just for me to kind of picture it is that, you know, they do the walk uh, towards the operating room to do the the uh, the organ part of it, and then you guys are just left in the room. Yes, we were all alone. Uh, nobody kicked us out of the room, but it's like well, I guess we just go home now. And, um, and that's what happened. So there was no handholding. <laughs> what could we as a healthcare group of people, what could we have done differently that day uh, that Jonathan went to the operating room to provide more support? Even, even small well, little I, things, what, what could we have done differently? Yes. Well, I thought that there could be kind of like a, a support team. Like for example, um, I thought there could be three possible people. The social worker could be in the room with us and check on us. Are you okay? Uh, are you all right to go home? Uh, possibly give us um, a pamphlet with who to contact for grief support. I mean, we found grief mm -hmm. support on our own through Brief Families of Ontario. So, you know, hook us up. <laughs> uh, just give us kind of a hint, a direction where to go to find grief support, because grief has been huge in my life. It's 13 and a half years later. And I realize this is my life's journey now grieving my son. It's not as mm -hmm. um, <laughs> sharp as it was in the beginning. But I still do grieve. I get triggered even now, you know, going back to thinking about the um, ICU, it takes me right back there. And uh, it's like it was yesterday. For me, so the social worker could have helped. I think that uh, the coordinator from the organ donation organization, which was Trillium in Ontario, maybe could have stayed um, to answer any questions. Uh, maybe also have a pamphlet about what what are the next steps. Well, for one thing, 
when will the body be released? That was an issue, actually, because normally um, in my religion in Judaism, we like to bury the next day. Well, no, uh, Jonathan had to have an autopsy of his brain to prove brain death because they couldn't take the um, regular brain death tests because of his optic nerves being severed. Uh, So I had to wait an extra day. And I wanted to plan the funeral, and I had to know this ahead of time. And um, also, when will Trillium contact us to let us know who got the organs, which organs were used, uh, when will the writing of letters be able to start, when can I write letters? Um, And it actually, you know, it was great. I did write letters. I received letters back from three of Jonathan's four organ recipients from each kidney recipient his lung recipient, but not his liver recipient. And his heart valves went to Sick Kids Hospital, and I don't think there's any letter writing for tissue. That counts as tissue, not whole organs. Um, so just to know that, and there was a ceremony to honor donors that Trillium does every year. I don't know now during COVID if they still do it. Um, so we were invited. So it would have been nice to know, oh, there will be a ceremony and you will be invited and it will be in such and such month at such and such a place. Uh, just a little heads up. Um, I think also uh, Trillium and and all of the donor um, organizations in every province should let Uh, the donor families know about the Canadian Transplant Association because that has been huge in my healing, my involvement with the Canadian Transplant Association, attending the transplant games, um, volunteering there, helping to organize the Toronto Games six years ago. Um, Anyway, so I, I just think that they can do a lot more on the spot. And the third uh, person I think that would be help would be a peer mentor, another person from a donor family mm. who has already been through the process and who could um, just be there to listen, to answer questions, to offer uh, contact information for later when you know the family is ready to speak and wants to hear someone else's uh, organ donor story and feel that oh, I'm not crazy. (laughs) Somebody else has gone through this too. Mm -hmm. And I can share and they can listen and share and uh, just to have somebody else who's been through the same experience. And I don't know if uh, the organ donor organizations can train a person, uh, a mentor, like different mentors, um, to be that person at that time in the hospital or even to have their contact information for after the hospital experience is over. Heather, you have been such a champion for organ donation and for Jonathan's legacy. Thank you so much for speaking to us today. Oh, it was my pleasure. Um, Thank you for this opportunity to share this uh, amazing message of organ donation. Heather Talbot is an advocate for organ donation, whose son Jonathan gave the gift of life after a car accident 13 years ago. She spoke to us from Toronto. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk to one of the co-authors of the study. Want to go further at every stage of your medical career? Learn how MD Financial Management and Scotiabank Healthcare Plus help physicians go further together with insights and solutions focused on the financial health of physicians. Whether you've just been accepted to medical school or you're getting ready to retire, we will understand and anticipate your needs every step of the way. To learn more, visit md.ca slash go further. 
Dr. Amy Sarti is the lead author of the qualitative study in the CMAJ entitled The Experiences of Family Members of Deceased Organ Donors and Suggestions to Improve the Donation Process. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So we will go through Heather's specific recommendations in a moment, but let's just start. What was your initial reaction to what she had said? I think, first of all, I am very thankful and grateful to Heather for sharing her story so openly and to all of the family members in our study who've really taken the time to tell us about their experiences and what we can do to improve And I think listening to Heather, and Heather wasn't a part of our study, she wasn't one of the family members that we had interviewed or in our family member committee, and what she said resonated with so much of what we heard from family members and is summarized in the various themes that we've captured in this study on the the different areas that we can do to enhance the support that we're providing family members. So I think that it, it really encapsulated those messages. What really hits you as you listen to her just recount the process is that that image of the family that's left alone in the room after the deceased member has been taken for the organ donation process. How typical is that from what you heard in your study? Yeah, unfortunately, it's not uncommon. So that is one of the themes that came across is that this specific moment family members have shared with us it does happen. And we have heard many stories from family members where they have felt like they've been left alone in that moment as the body's been taken to the operating room. And it's really heartbreaking. And it's really hard to hear that there was this moment for people that we could have provided more support, and that they're left with this long lasting memory of feeling alone during that time. In In another instance, in the pediatric realm, I remember interviewing a man and he told me that his wife wanted him to do the interview and she herself wasn't ready. She was grieving the loss of their son. And he shared with me them being told that their son had been declared brain dead, them consenting to organ donation, them going through the process. And he recalls this moment of walking their boy to the operating room and the whole team going into the operating room and him and his wife being left outside standing there alone and it his words will never leave my mind of this moment and I asked what he did and similar to Heather he said we went back to the ICU we gathered our things and we left And it is this moment where we can have someone there and this is feasible for us to do and it can be different team members in that moment. And it doesn't always happen, but I can see how it happens. We're busy in our clinical practice. All of the team members there have multiple different roles that they're fulfilling. So you can see how that instance can occur, but you can also see very reasonable solutions to that with checklists and making sure that at the beginning we've decided who's going to be dedicated to the family member in that moment. Mm -hmm. How surprised were you and your team of co-authors by the responses you heard in the study? I think that there, there were multiple different things that we heard that certainly did strike us. And I'd like to just talk about another moment. So in that case of the, that we talked about of the body going to the operating room, Mm -hmm. that is one moment The other moment that I found very striking is when organ donation cannot occur and a family member has gone through this entire process and 
they're waiting there, waiting to find out if organ donation can occur after the withdrawal of life support, because there's a time period where if the person does not die in time, then organ donation can't occur. Mm -hmm. And that transition back into the ICU or learning that organ donations not occur is is, a, is another moment where family members have told us that they need more support. And what we've heard from people is that sometimes they're quietly going through much more in their grieving process than mm-hmm. I think that we've recognized and different forms of loss. So while losing a loved one and the tragedy and the grief of losing a loved one, when people consent to and go through the process of organ donation, often there's a feeling of hope and hope that this is going to occur. And when it doesn't occur, people can describe other losses. And I recall a woman that I interviewed and she described waiting and hoping for organ donation. And when learning that it wasn't going to occur, she said silently in her head, she was trying to stay really calm in the room, but she was feeling that she had she had failed the world with her words and that she had failed all of the recipients that were waiting. And she said, failed all of those people who are waiting for organs. So the added support that people need when donation doesn't occur is another instance that I think that we really need to work on. How feasible is it to do that? We all know what the constraints are in the healthcare system right now. How feasible is it to have those extra steps? Yeah, I think that's a really important question and one that I don't fully have the answer to, but I do worry about the feasibility of implementing many of the suggestions that are here. And I think that there's some, as we talked about, like having someone dedicated at the moment when the body is being taken to the operating room, there is a team there. We can add that to a checklist. I think that is very feasible and can be very quickly implemented. The added support, for example, when donation cannot occur may be very much a challenge. And if they need someone to sit with them for an hour after or half an hour or to talk about that and to have the skills and expertise to create a space where they can share these different feelings that they're having takes a certain kind of expertise as well. And I think there are real challenges with that. And in our intensive care unit, the unit that I work in, even before the pandemic, our social worker had been cut down to only three days a week. So you heard the importance of that to Heather of having access and she had to find the social worker. Well, on certain days, they're not available in our ICU. And we also have a lot of turnover in our intensive care unit, as many are experiencing right now with more junior nurses coming through, more demands on our nurses, more demands on the physicians to see more patients. And so I do worry that in the current situation, it's going to be very difficult to provide those extra supports in hospital. And also the organ and tissue donation coordinators, they have multiple different roles and they're a pivotal person on the team. And they also may be pulled in different directions or across multiple hospitals or sites. So we really need to sit down and see what can we do with what we have and do we potentially need more resources, which I think would be a real challenge right now. Heather had mentioned sort of the role of having a mentor or maybe a family member who had gone through this before who might be able to provide like a peer support in a way. Has that been looked at? Is that an an option? Yeah, I think Heather sharing that is is also something that resonates with what family members were telling us. We heard from many family members wanting to connect with someone who has a shared experience. So they would tell us, 
not a doctor, not a nurse, not the coordinator, but somebody who knows what I've been through or has an idea of what I've been through and that I can talk to you about that. This is something that we're now talking about and meeting with different groups and stakeholders to see what's possible, what's feasible. I think one of the other things that that surprised me was the want of family members to contribute and to do that role and sharing with us through their interviews that they wished there was an opportunity for them to do something, to help someone, to connect, to connect with people. And I thought that was really incredible. And people also shared with us that can be healing for them to be able to be in that role. So I think that there's opportunities here, but how to actually enact that and to create that are really big questions. And as we're working towards creating these types of resources, I think it's also really important for us to have a system in place for ongoing evaluation and hearing from family members. Did it work? Did it not work? Because these suggestions, sometimes in practice, they don't turn out quite the way that's anticipated at the beginning. So we really need to evaluate it as we go through. What's next in terms of how to start implementing these changes? Yeah, I think there's a number of things as far as what's next. And there's already things happening across the country to work on implementing some of these suggestions and work on trying to improve the care being provided to family members during this time. For example, in Nova Scotia, they've developed a position of a family support liaison as their legislative changes were moving through. So there is a position now there. And we're researching how that position is impacting family family members' experiences. So there is already changes happening across the country. The next thing that we have coming through, as I mentioned, there's uh, the importance of critical care physicians having access to appropriate training so that we learn how to best communicate and we learn about where these moments are that we can enhance the support that we're providing as well. Uh, so we've developed a communication and patient family centered care module as part of a national curriculum on organ donation with CBS. So that's going to be available very soon. And then the other part, I think, is we need to really sit down and work on developing the different resources that family members are asking for. So we're coming together with key stakeholder groups, with the organ donation organizations, and with different researchers and experts and family members themselves to talk about how we how we best implement solutions. And I think it's important to know that and to recognize that education alone is not enough. We've got to look at tools that can be helpful, adding to checklists or new checklists, communication tools, system level changes. And we also need to look at those resources and advocate for resources for family members in and out of the hospital, because it's not just the organ donations, the hospital, all of these clinicians who have very important pieces to play. But I think other groups also, we need to make sure there's access to mental health resources, following mm -hmm. being in the hospital, bereavement counseling, be bereavement resources. And we've heard from family members that it's a struggle to find these resources. And also, even where resources do exist, Often family members don't know and they're searching and they're trying to find that. So putting this together so that 
family members have access to, whether it be a website or a booklet or a hotline that they can call and talk to somebody so that they don't have to go searching for those things during the period of time when they've left the hospital. Thank you so much, Amy. This has been really enlightening and there's a lot of food for thought for all of us as clinicians. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Jola, this was a bit heartbreaking to hear sort of that scene of people being seemingly sort of abandoned or feeling abandoned mm-hmm. as their loved one is whisked away uh, for the doctors to have their win with organ retrieval. It really, really hit me hard as, as someone who spent a lot of time in the ICU and, and has seen this process go down. And I can I can totally picture this happening probably where, you know, I'm focused on popping into the operating room to see what goes on and, and the family is just left alone. Um, it's, it's exciting that Amy and her colleagues are, are taking that extra step of doing qualitative work. You know, it's so often underappreciated qualitative work, sure. but gives us such rich information and 271 interviews. That is so much work. It is. I'm so glad they've done this. So what hit you hard? What was the big takeaway for you? I think for me, it was that doctors and medical training is really good at teaching us how to deal with disease, but not how to deal with people. Because, you know, I also recently had patients who've passed away and yeah, I, you know, do all the work I have to do, blah, 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 blah. And honestly, as I'm, as I'm looking back and I'm like, was there any support for them? Like, you know, their loved one passed away and then what's next? Like they just go home. And so I think one thing that really struck me was that we really need what patients are asking for, what people are asking for is not necessarily any newer technology and all these things that we, you know, the government wants to spend money on, but just taking care of the people that we have. Yeah. And, you know, having like a grief doula, because um, I've read up a lot about those uh, just in other aspects of my life. And I think that, you know, having something like that within the hospital system where it's easily accessible to people and they know where to get these services and there's some and that cost is not a barrier to it and that they can have that access. I mean, if you're going through the process of organ donation, the least we can do as an appreciation for such an incredible gift is provide you these services free of charge. Mm-hmm. I think it really highlights the lack of those social supports in the hospital. I mean, social workers, it seems like they're always getting cut back. And uh, I know my emergency department doesn't even have a social worker. It's just... That's bizarre. It's bizarre. I mean, I I get that everyone's trying to save money right now, but um, I think social workers or or people who specialize in attending to suffering and attending to the human condition, they're, they're just so good at it. And I've learned so much from social workers uh, over the last couple of years, and I just wish we had more of them. I used to think when I first started, I thought, oh, social workers, they have the best gig in the ICU because they're Monday to Friday and everyone else does shift work. But it's actually super hard because they're the constant. Mm-hmm. They're there Monday to Friday, week after week after week. They really get to know families involved in these cases where people are in the ICU for a while and they're just so good at connecting with families and providing them the support that they need in ways that myself and even some of my nursing colleagues I think we're just not trained in that in that art and that skill I just wish we had more social workers 
But that's just that's just one part of this, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I think actually it's probably the main part of it, right? Like us that are within the healthcare system really need to start advocating for our patients and their family. And I think yeah. that starts with we need like these cutbacks need to stop and we need to really invest in the people in the system. Um, I think without that, the system is already crumbling. It's going to crumble a lot faster. Yeah. The the low hanging fruit here, I think the, the immediate stopgap is for, I mean, I know that house staff are super busy, but, but residents and fellows, um, can just sort of maybe also step up a little bit into that role. I know that house staff are so busy, um, but just to be able to take that extra moment to connect with people um, might just be one way that physicians can can try to alleviate a little bit of this suffering. I'm going to be a little bit controversial. Yeah. I don't think some of us are good at it. I think some of us are shitty at it, to be quite <laughs> honest. Like, I don't honestly don't think like I, I think there's some people who shouldn't do it. And because if you're not trained to do it, you will say the wrong thing and you can make a situation feel worse. And so in a way, it's like I, I don't want to even I would never ask for a nurse to do it, mainly because I feel like they're underappreciated and overworked um, physicians a little bit, too. But I just don't think we have the skill set to do well, it. Right. I, I mean, we're all human. I think just by being in the room, you're contributing. We're doctors first. Humans uh, <laughs> cyborgs. But I, I mean, I don't know. I think just being in the room um, means something so that people aren't alone, even if you don't know what to say or you don't have that skill set of, of necessarily attending to suffering. But uh, it, I mean, it's it's a statement right there that a lot of physicians maybe aren't good at attending to suffering. I mean, that that goes back um, to, to deeper roots and we have time to discuss today, but that should be our primary focus, right? We it can't always be. cure people, um, but we can certainly just be present. That's it for this week on the CMAJ podcast. Thanks very much for joining us. Please be sure to share or like our podcast wherever you download your audio. It would really help us get our messages out. And this week's message is certainly important and touching for both Jola and I. So we do appreciate any type of um, sharing that you can do for us to, to get our podcast out there. Until then, we'll see you two weeks from now with another episode. I'm Blair Bigham. I'm Mojola Amale. Until next time, be well.